Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Continuing Chapter 70. Tucking the covers around Angel, Celestina said, Would you like Uncle Wally to be your daddy? That would be the best. I think so, too. I never had a daddy, you know. Getting Wally was worth the wait, huh? Will we move in with Uncle Wally? That's the way it usually works. Will Miss Ornwall leave? All that stuff will need to be worked out. If she leaves, you'll have to make the cheese. The sound suppressor didn't render the pistol entirely silent, but the three soft reports, each like a quiet cough muffled by a hand, wouldn't it carry beyond the hallway. Round one hit Ichabod in the left eye, because Junior fired while bringing the weapon up from his side. But the next two were solid torso scores. This was not bad for an amateur, even if the distance the target was nearly short enough to define their encounter as hand-to-hand combat. And Junior decided that if the deformation of his left foot hadn't prevented him from fighting in Vietnam, he would have acquitted himself exceptionally well in the war. Clutching the purses, though determined to resist robbery even in death, The guy dropped, sprawled, shuddered, and lay still. He'd gone down with no shout of alarm, with no cry of mortal pain, with so little noise that Junior wanted to kiss him. Except that he didn't kiss men, alive or dead. Although a man dressed as a woman had once tricked him, and though a dead pianist had once given him a lick in the dark. Her voice is bright as her bed ensemble. Spiritual sister to baby chicks everywhere, Yellow Angel raised her head from the pillow and said, Will you have a wedding? A wonderful wedding, Celestina promised her, taking a pair of pajamas from a dresser drawer. Angel yawned at last. Cake? Always cake at a wedding. I like cake. I like puppies. Unbuttoning her blouse, Celestina said, Traditionally, puppies don't have a role in weddings. The telephone rang. We don't sell no pizza, Angel said, because lately they had received a few calls for a new pizzeria with a phone number one digit different from theirs. 
Snatching up the phone before the second ring, Celestina said, Hello? Miss White? Yes. This is Detective Bellini with the San Francisco Police Department. Is everything all right there? All right. Yes. What? Is anyone with you? My little girl, she said, and belatedly she realized that this might not be a policeman after all, but someone trying to determine if she and Angel were alone in the apartment. Please try not to be alarmed, Miss White, but I have a patrol car on the way to your address. And suddenly, Celestina believed that Bellini was a cop, not because his voice contained such authority, but because her heart told her that the time had come, that the long-anticipated danger had at last materialized the dark advent that Femia warned her about three years ago. We have reason to believe that the man who raped your sister is stalking you. He would come. She knew. She had always known, but had half forgotten. There was something special about Angel, and because of that specialness, she had lived under a threat as surely as the newborns of Bethlehem under King Herod's death decree. Long ago, Celestina glimpsed a complex and mysterious pattern in this, and to the eye of the artist, the symmetry of the design required that the father would sooner or later come. Are your doors locked? Bellini asked. There's just the front door. Yes, locked. Where are you now? My bedroom. Where's your daughter? Here. Angel was sitting up in bed, as alert as she was yellow. Is there a lock on your bedroom door? Bellini asked. Not much of one. Lock it anyway, and don't hang up. Stay on the line until the patrolmen get there. Junior couldn't leave the dead man in the hall and hope to have any quality time with Celestina. Aftermath had a way of being discovered, often at the worst of all possible moments, which he had learned from movies and from crime stories in the media and even from personal experience. Discovery always brought the police at high speed sounding their sirens and full of enthusiasm because those bastards were the most past-focused losers on the face of the earth, utterly consumed by their interest in aftermath. He jammed the 9mm pistol under his belt, grabbed Ichabod by the feet, and dragged him quickly towards the door to apartment one. Smears of blood brightened the pale limestone floor in the wake of the body. These weren't lakes of blood. Just smears, so Junior could wipe them up quickly once he got the corpse out of the hallway. But the sight of them further infuriated him. He was here to bring closure to all of the unfinished business of Spruce Hills, to free himself from vengeful spirits, to better his life and plunge henceforth entirely into a bright new future. He wasn't here, damn it, to do building maintenance. The core wasn't long enough to allow Celestina to take the telephone handset with her. So she put it down on the nightstand, beside the lamp. What's wrong? Angel asked. Be quiet, sugar pie, she said, crossing the bedroom to the door, which stood only slightly ajar. All of the windows were locked. She was conscientious about them. She knew that the front door was locked, too, because Wally had waited to hear the deadbolts clack shut. Nevertheless, she stepped into the hall, where the lights weren't on walked quickly past Angel's bedroom, came to the entrance of the lamp-lit living room, and saw a man backing through the open front door, dragging something, dragging a dark and large and heavy rumpled something, dragging a... Oh, sweet, dear Jesus. No. He had dragged Ichabod halfway across the threshold when he heard someone say, No. Junior glanced over his shoulder even as Celestina turned and fled. He caught only a glimpse of her disappearing into the inner hallway. Focus. 
Get Ichabod all the way inside. Act now. Think later. No. No. Proper focus requires an understanding of the need to eyes. Scrutinize, analyze, and prioritize. Get the bitch. Get the bitch. Slow, deep breaths. Channel the beautiful rage. A fully evolved man is self-controlled and calm. Move, move, move. Suddenly, so many of Zed's greatest maxims seem to conflict with one another, when previously they had together formed a reliable philosophy and guide to success. A door slammed, and after the briefest of internal debates about whether to eyes or act, Junior left Ichabod straddling the threshold. He must get to Celestina before she reached the telephone, and then he could come back and finish moving the body. Celestina slammed the door, pressed the lock button in the knob, shoved rocked muscle the dresser in front of the door, astonished by her own strength, and heard Angel speaking into the phone. Mommy's moving furniture. She snatched the handset away from Angel, told Bellini, he's here, threw the phone on the bed, told Angel, stay close to me, ran to the windows, and jerked the drapes out of the way. Commit and Command it doesn't matter so much whether the course of action to which you commit is prudent or hopelessly rash. It doesn't matter whatsoever whether society at large thinks it's a good thing that you're doing or a bad thing. As long as you commit without reservation, you will inevitably command. Because so few people are ever willing to commit to anything, right or wrong, wise or unwise, that those who plunge are guaranteed to succeed more often than not, even when their actions are reckless and their cause is idiotic. Far from idiotic, Junior's cause was his survival and salvation, and he committed himself to it with every fiber of his body, with all of his mind and heart. Three doors in the dark hallway, one to the right ajar, and two to the left, both closed. To the right first. Kicked the door open, simultaneously firing two rounds, because maybe this was her bedroom where she kept a gun. Mirror shattered. A tin tenabulation of falling glass on porcelain, glass on ceramic tile. A lot more noise than the shots themselves. He realized he had trashed a deserted bathroom. Too much clatter, drawing attention. No leisure for romance now. No chance for a two-sister score. Just kill Celestina, kill Bartholomew, and go. Go. First room on the left. Move. Kick the door open. The sense of a larger space beyond, no bathroom this time, and darker. Fan the pistol, gripping with both hands, two quick shots, muffled cough, muffled cough. Light switch to the left, blinking in the brightness. Kids' room, Bartholomew's room, furniture in cheerful primary colors, poo posters on the wall. Surprisingly, dolls. Quite a few dolls. Apparently, the bastard boy was effeminate, a quality he sure as hell hadn't inherited from his father. Nobody here. Unless under the bed? In the closet? Waste of time to check those places. More likely, woman and boy were hiding in the last room. Swift and yellow, Angel flew to her mother, grabbing at one of the bunch drapes as if she might hide behind it. The window was French with small panes, so Celestina couldn't simply break the glass and climb out. A deep-set casement window. Two latches on the right side, one high, one low. Detachable hand crank lying on the foot-deep sill. Mechanism socking in the base casing. Celestina jammed the shaft to the crank into the casing socket. It wouldn't fit. Her hands were shaking. 
Steel fins on the shaft of the crank had to be lined up just so with slots in the socket. She fumbled, fumbled again. Lord, please help me here. The maniac kicked the door. A moment ago, he had slammed in the angel's room, and that was loud, but this boomed louder, thunderous enough to wake people throughout the building. The crank engaged. Turn. Turn. Where was the patrol car? Why no siren? The window mechanism creaked. The two tall panes began to open outward, but too slowly, and the cold white night exhaled a chill plume of breath into the room. The maniac kicked once more. But because of the bracing dresser, the door wouldn't budge. So he kicked harder, again without success. Hurry, Angel whispered. Junior stepped back and squeezed off two shots, aiming for the lock. One round tore a chunk out the jam, but the other cracked through the door, shattering more than wood, and the brass knob wobbled and almost fell out. He pushed on the door, but still resisted and he surprised himself by letting out a bellow of frustration that expressed quite the opposite of self-control, though no one listening could have had the slightest doubt about his determination to commit and command. Again, he fired into the lock, squeezed the trigger a second time, and discovered that no rounds remained in the magazine. Extra cartridges were distributed in his pockets. Never would he pause to reload at this desperate penultimate moment, when success or failure might be decided in mere seconds. That would be the choice of a man who thought first and acted later. The behavior of a born loser. A plate-sized piece of the door had been blasted away. Because of the light shining through from the room beyond, Junior could see that no part of the lock remained intact. In fact, he through a hole in the door to the back of a piece of furniture that was jammed against it, whereupon the nature of the problem became clear to him. He tucked his left arm tight against his side and threw himself against the door. The obstructing furniture was heavy, but it moved an inch. If it would give one inch, it would give two, so it wasn't immovable, and he was already as good as in there. Celestina didn't hear gunfire, but she couldn't mistake the bullets for anything else when they cracked through the door. The blocking dresser, which doubled as a vanity, was surmounted by a mirror. One bullet drilled through the plywood backing, made a spiderweb puzzle of the silver glass, lodged in the wall above the bed. Thwack! and kicked out a spray of plaster chips. When the two vertical panes of the casement window were still less than seven inches apart, they stuttered. The mechanism produced a dismal, grinding rasp that sounded like the guttural pronunciation of the problem itself. Corrosion! And seized up. Even Angel, mere wisp of a cherubim, couldn't squeeze through a seven-inch opening. In the hall, the maniac roared in frustration. The hateful window. The hateful, frozen window. Celestina wrenched on the crank with all her strength and felt something give a little wrench, but then the crank popped out of the socket and wrapped against the sill. She didn't hear gunfire this time either, but the hard crack of splintering wood attested to the passage of at least two more bullets. Turning away from the window, Celestina grabbed the girl and pushed her towards the bed, whispering, Down. Under. Angel didn't want to go, maybe because of Boogeyman schemed beneath the bed in some of her nightmares. Scoot! Celestina fiercely insisted. Finally, Angel dropped and slithered, vanishing under the underhanging bedclothes with a final flurry of yellow socks. Three years ago, in St. Mary's Hospital, with Femi's warning fresh in her mind, Celestina swore that she would be ready when the beast came. But here he came, 
and she was not as ready as possible. Time passes. The perception of a threat fades. Life becomes busier. You work your butt off as a waitress. You graduate college. Your little girl grows to be so vital, so vivid, so alive that you know she just has to live forever. And after all, you are the daughter of a minister, a believer in the power of compassion, and the prince of peace, confident that the meek shall inherit the earth. So in three long years, you don't buy a gun, nor do you take any training in self-defense. And somehow, you forget that the meek who will one day inherit the earth are those who forego aggression, but are not those so pathetically meek that they won't even defend themselves. Because a failure to resist evil is a sin, and the willful refusal to defend your life is a mortal sin of passive suicide, and the failure to protect a little yellow M&M girl will surely buy you a ticket to hell on the same express train on which the slave traders rode to their own eternal enslavement, on which the master of Dachau and old Joe Stalin traveled from power to punishment. So here, now, as the beast throws himself against the door, as he shoves aside the barricade, with what precious little time you have left, fight! Junior shoved through the black door, into the bedroom, and the bitch hit him with a chair. A small, slap-back side chair with a tie-on seat cushion. She swung it like a baseball bat, and there must have been some Jackie Robinson blood in the white family line, because she had the power to knock a fastball from Brooklyn to the Bronx. If she had connected with his left side as she intended, she might have broken his arm or cracked a few ribs. But he saw the chair coming, and as agile as a base runner dodging a shortstop's tag, he turned away from her, taking the blow across his back. This back blow wasn't just sport either, but more like Vietnam as he sometimes told women that he remembered it. As though pitched by a grenade blast, Junior went from his feet to the floor with chin-wrapping impact, teeth guillotining together so hard that he would have severed his tongue if it had been between them. He knew that she wouldn't just step back to calculate her batting average, so he rolled at once, out of her way, immensely relieved that he could move because judging by the pain corsicating across his back, he wouldn't have been surprised if she had broken his spine and paralyzed him. The chair crashed down again, exactly where Junior had been sprawled an instant before. The crazy bitch wielded it with such ferocity that the force of the impact with the floor, redounding upon her, must have numbed her arms. She stumbled backwards, dragging the chair, temporarily unable to lift it. Entering the bedroom, Junior had expected to cast aside his pistol and draw a knife, but he was no longer in a mood for close-up work. Fortunately, he had managed to hold on to the gun. He hurt too much to recover quickly and take advantage of the woman's brief vulnerability. Clambering to his feet, he backed away from her and fumbled in a pocket for spare cartridges. She had hidden Bartholomew somewhere, probably in the closet. Plugged the painter, killed the kid. He was a man with a plan, focused, committed, ready to act and then think. As soon as he was able to act. A spasm of pain weakened his hand. Cartridges slipped through his fingers, fell to the floor. Your deeds will return to you, magnified beyond imagining. Those ominous words again, turning through his memory, reel to reel. This time he actually heard them spoken. The voice commanded attention with a deeper timbre and crisper diction than his own. He ejected the magazine from the butt of the pistol, nearly dropped it. Celestina circled him, half carrying but also half dragging the chair, either because her nerves were still ringing and her arms were weak, or because she was faking weakness in the hope of luring him into a reckless response. 
Junior circled her while she rounded on him, frantically trying to deal with the pistol without taking his eyes off his adversary. Sirens, the spirit of Bartholomew will find you and mete out the terrible judgment that you deserve. Reverend White's polished, somewhat theatrical, yet sincere voice rose out of the past to issue this threat in Junior's memory as he had issued it that night from a tape recorder while Junior had been dancing a sweaty, horizontal boogie with Seraphim in her parsonage bedroom. The minister's threat had been forgotten, repressed. At the time, only half heard, merely kinky background of lovemaking, these words had amused Junior, and he had given no serious thoughts to their meaning, to the message of retribution contained in them. Now... In this moment of extreme danger, the inflamed boil of repressed memory burst under pressure, and Junior was shocked, stunned, to realize that the minister had put a curse on him. Sirens swelling. Dropped cartridges gleamed on the carpet. Stooped to snatch them up? No, that was asking for a skull-cracking blow. Celestina, the battering Baptist, back in action, came at him again. With one leg broken, another cracked, and the stretcher bar splintered, the chair wasn't as formidable a weapon as it had been. She swung it. Junior dodged. She struck at him again. He juked, and she reeled away from him, gasping. The bitch was getting tired, but Junior still didn't like his odds in a hand-to-hand confrontation. Her hair was disarranged. Her eyes flashed with such wildness that he was half convinced that he saw elliptical pupils like those of a jungle cat. Her lips were skimmed back from her teeth in a snarl. She looked just as insane as Junior's mother. Too close, those sirens. Another pocket, more cartridges, trying to squeeze just two into the magazine, but his hands shaking and slippery with sweat. The chair, a glancing blow, no damage, driving him backwards to the window. The sirens were right here. Cops at the doorstep, the lunatic bitch with the chair, the clergyman's curse. All this amounted to more than even a committed man could handle. Get out of the present. Go for the future. He threw down the pistol, the magazine, and the cartridges. As the bitch began her backswing, Junior grabbed the chair. He didn't try and tear it out of her hands, but used to shove her as hard as he could. She stepped on a broken off chair leg, lost her balance, and fell backwards into the side of the bed. As nimble as a geriatric cat, crying out with pain, she nevertheless sprang onto the deep window sill and shoved against the twin panes of the window. They were already partly open, but they were also stuck. Crouched on the deep sill, pushing against the parted casement panes of the tall French window, and not just muscle, but the entire weight of his body, leaning into them. The maniac tried to force his way out of the bedroom. Even above the piston knock of her heart and the bellows wheeze of her breath, Celestina heard wood crack. A small pane of glass explode and metal torque with a squeal. The creep was going to get away. The window didn't face the street. It overlooked a five-foot wide passageway between this house and the next. The police might not spot him leaving. She could have gone at him with the chair once more, but it was falling apart. Instead, she abandoned furniture for the promise of a firearm, dropped to her knees, and snatched a discarded pistol magazine off the floor. The shriek of the sirens groaned in the silence. The police must have pulled to the curb in the street. Celestina plucked a brassy bullet off the carpet. Another small pane of glass burst. A dismaying crack of wood. His back to her, the maniac raged at the window with the snarling ferocity of a caged beast. She didn't have experience with guns, but having seen him trying to press cartridges into the magazine, she knew how to load. 
She inserted one round, then a second. Enough. The corroded casement operating mechanism began to give way, as did the hinges, and the window sagged outward. From the far end of the apartment, men shouted, Police! Celestina screamed, In here! In here! As she slapped the magazine into the butt of the pistol. Still on her knees, she raised the weapon and realized she was going to shoot the maniac in the back, that she had no other choice because her inexperience didn't allow her to aim for a leg or an arm. The moral dilemma overwhelmed her, but so did an image of Femi lying dead in bloody sheets on the surgery table. She pulled the trigger and rocked with the recoil. The window gave way an instant before Celestina squeezed off the shot. The man dropped out of sight. She didn't know she had scored a hit. To the window. The warm room stuck cooling fog out of the night, and she leaned across the sill into the streaming mist. The narrow brick-paved serviceway lay five feet below. The maniac had knocked over trash cans while making his escape, but he wasn't tumbled among the rest of the garbage. From out of the fog and darkness came the slap of running feet on bricks. He was sprinting toward the back of the house. Drop the gun! Celestina threw down the weapon even before she turned, and as two cops entered the room, she cried, He's getting away! From serviceway to alley to serviceway to street, into the city and the fog and the night, Junior ran from the cane past into the pinchbeck future. During the course of this momentous day, he had employed Zed learned techniques to channel his hot anger into a red hot rage. Now, without any conscious effort on his part, rage grew into molten white fury. As his vengeful spirits weren't trouble enough, he had for three years been struggling unwittingly against the terrible power of the minister's curse, black Baptist voodoo that made his life miserable. He knew now why he had been plagued by violent nervous amesis, by epic diarrhea, by hideously disfiguring hives, the failure to find a heartmate, the humiliation with Renee Vivi, the two nasty cases of gonorrhea, the disastrous meditative catatonia, the inability to learn French and German, his loneliness, his emptiness, his thwarted attempts to find and kill the bastard boy born of Femi's wound. All these things and more, much more, were the hateful consequences of the vicious, vindictive voodoo of that hypocritical Christian. As a highly self-improved, fully evolved, committed man who was comfortable with his raw instincts, Junior should be sailing through life on calm seas, under perpetually sunny skies, with his sails always full of wind. But instead, he was constantly cruelly battered and storm-tossed through an unrelenting night. Not because of any shortcomings of mind or heart or character, but because of black magic. Before I go any further uh, into the next chapter, because that's the end of that chapter. Um, nowhere in the Bible is suicide mentioned as a sin. I just want to point that out. Also, there is now a um, number specifically for the suicide hotline. It's 988, Chapter 71. At St. Mary's Hospital, where Wally had brought Angel into this world three years ago, he was now fighting for his life, for a chance to see the girl grow and to be the father she needed. He had been taken to surgery already when Celestina and Angel arrived a few minutes behind the ambulance. They were driven to St. Mary's by Detective Bellini in a police sedan. Tom Vanadium a friend of her father's whom she had met a few times in Spruce Hills, but whom she didn't know very well. Literally rode shotgun, 
tends to react. Wary of the occupants of other vehicles on these foggy streets, as though one of them must surely be the maniac. Tom was an Oregon State Police detective, as far as Celestina knew, and she didn't understand what he was doing here. Nor could she begin to imagine the nature of the disaster that had befallen him, leaving his face looking blasted and loose at all of its hinges. She had last seen him at Femi's funeral. A few minutes ago at her doorstep, she'd recognized him only because of his port wine birthmark. Her father respected and admired Tom, so she was thankful for his presence. And anyone who could survive whatever catastrophe had left him with this cubistic face was a man she wanted on her team in a crisis. Holding fast to her frightened angel in the backseat of the car, Celestine was amazed at her own courage in combat and by the steady calm that served her so well now. She wasn't shaken by the thought of what might have happened to her and to her daughter because her mind and heart were with Wally and because... Having been watered with hope all her life, she had a deep reservoir on which to draw in a time of drought. Bellini assured Celestina that they didn't expect Enoch Kane to be so brazen as to follow police vehicles and to renew his assault on her at St. Mary's. Nevertheless, he assigned a uniformed police officer to the hall outside the waiting room that served friends and family to patients in the intensive care unit. And judging by that guard's high level of vigilance, Bellini had not entirely ruled out the possibility that Kane might show up here to finish what he had started in Pacific Heights. Like all ICU waiting rooms, where death sits patiently, smiling, in anticipation. This lounge was clean but drab, and the utilitarian furnishings didn't pamper as though bright colors and comfort might annoy the ascetic reaper and motivate him to cut down more patients than otherwise he would have done. Even at this post-midnight hour, the lounge would sometimes be as crowded with worried loved ones as at any other time of the day. This morning, however, the only life under the threat of the sky appeared to be Wally's. The sole vigil being kept was for him. Traumatized by the violence in her mother's bedroom, not fully aware of what happened to Wally, Angel had been tearful and anxious. A thoughtful physician gave her a glass of orange juice spiked with a small dose of a sedative, and a nurse provided pillows. Bedded down on two pillow padded chairs, wearing a rose-colored robe over yellow pajamas, she gave herself as fully to sleep as she always did, sedative or not, which was every bit as fully as she gave herself to life when she was awake. After taking a preliminary statement from Celestina, Bellini left the romantic judge out of bed and obtained a search warrant for Enoch Kane's residence, having already ordered a stakeout of the Russian Hill apartment. Celestina's description of her assailant was a perfect match for Kane. Furthermore, the suspect's Mercedes had been abandoned at her place. Bellini sounded confident that they would find and arrest the man soon. Tom Vanadium, on the other hand, was certain that Kane, having prepared for the possibility that something would go wrong during his assault on Celestina, wouldn't be easy to locate or to apprehend. In Vanadium's view, the maniac either had a bolt hole waiting in the city or was already out of the SFPD's jurisdiction. Well, maybe you're right, Bellini said somewhere acerbically before departing. But then you've had the advantage of an illegal search. Well, I'm hampered by such niceties as warrants. Celestina sensed the easy camaraderie between these two men, but also tension that was perhaps related to the reference of an illegal search. After Bellini left, Tom questioned Celestina extensively, with an emphasis on Femi's rape. Although the subject was painful, she was grateful for the questions. 
Without this distraction, in spite of her well of hope, she might have allowed her imagination to fashion terror after terror until Wally had died a hundred times over in her mind. Your father denies the rape ever occurred, apparently out of what I call a misguided willingness to trust in divine justice. It's partly that, she agreed, but originally, Daddy wanted Femi to tell so the man could be charged and prosecuted. Though he's a good Baptist, Daddy isn't without a thirst for vengeance. I'm glad to hear it, Tom said. His thin smile might have been ironic, though it wasn't easy to interpret the meaning of any subtle expression on his hammered face. And after Femi was gone, he still hoped to learn the rapist's name, put him in prison. But then something changed his mind, oh, maybe two years ago. Suddenly, he wanted to let it go, leave judgment to God. He said if the rapist was as twisted as Femi claimed, then Angel and I might be in danger if we ever learned a name and went to the police. Don't stir a hornet's nest, let sleeping dogs lie, and all that. I don't know what changes mind. I do. Tom said. Now, thanks to you, what changed his mind was me. This face. Kane did this to me. I spent most of 65 in a coma. After I came out of it and recovered enough to have visitors, I asked to see your dad. About two years ago, as you say. From Max Bellini, I knew Femi died in childbirth, not an accident. And Max's instincts told him rape. I explained to your dad why Kane was a man. I wanted whatever information he might have. But I suppose, sitting there, looking at my face, he decided that Cain is indeed the biggest hornet's nest ever. And he didn't want to put his daughter and granddaughter at greater risk than necessary. Now this. Now this. But even if your dad had cooperated with me, nothing would have changed. Since Femi never revealed his name, I wouldn't have been able to go after Cain any differently or more effectively. On the two-chair bed beside her mother, Angel issued small cries of distress in her sleep. Whatever presences flocked around her in the dream, they weren't baby chickens. Murmuring reassurances, Celestina put her hand on the girl's head and smoothed her brow, her hair, until the sour dream was sweetened by the touch. Still seeking some missing fact, some insight that would help him understand the maniac's Bartholomew obsession, Tom asked more questions until Celestina suddenly realized and revealed what might be the information that he sought. Kane's perverse insistence on playing the Reverend's tape rough draft of this momentous day throughout his long assault on her sister. Femi said the creep thought it was funny, but using Daddy's voice's background music also, well, aroused him. Maybe because it further humiliated her and because he knew it would humiliate our father but we never told Daddy that part of it. Neither of us saw any useful reason for telling him. For a while, leaning forward in his chair and staring at the floor with an intensity and an expression that could not have been expired by the insipid vinyl tiles, Tom mulled over what she had told him. Then, the connection is there, but it's still not entirely clear to me. So he took perverse pleasure in raping her with her father's sermon as an accompaniment. And maybe without his realizing it, the Reverend's message got deep inside his head. I wouldn't think our cowardly wife killer has a capacity for guilt. Although maybe your dad worked sort of a miracle and planted that very seed. Mom always said the pigs will surely fly one day if ever daddy chose to convince them that they've got wings. But in this momentous day, 
Bartholomew is just a disciple, the historical figure, and he's also a metaphor for the unforeseen consequences of even our most ordinary actions. So? He's not a real contemporary person. Not anyone can use a fear. So how did he develop this obsession with finding someone named Bartholomew? He met Celestina's eyes, as if she might have answers for him. Is there a real Bartholomew? And how does this tie in with his assault on you? Or is there any tie-in at all? I think we could wind up as crazy as he is if we tried long enough to puzzle out his twisted logic. He shook his head. I think he's evil, not crazy, and stupid in the way that evil often is. Too arrogant and too vain to be aware of his stupidity, and therefore always tangled up in traps of his own making. But nonetheless, dangerous for being stupid. In fact, far more dangerous than a wiser man with a sense of consequences. Tom Vanadium's uninflected but curiously hypnotic voice, his pensive manner, his gray eyes so beautifully in that fractured face, his air of measured melancholy, and his evident intelligence gave him a presence that was simultaneously as solid as a great mass of granite and yet otherworldly. Are all policemen as philosophical as you? Celestina asked. He smiled. Those of us who are priests first. Yeah, we're all a broody bunch. Are the others? Not many but probably more than you think. Footsteps in the hall drew their attention to the open door, where the surgeon appeared in his loose cotton greens. Celestina rose, heart suddenly clumping in her breast, like heavy footsteps hurrying away from an approaching bearer of bad news. But she herself couldn't run, could only stand rooted in her hope, and hear in her mind six versions of a bleak prognosis in the two seconds before the doctor actually spoke. He came through the surgery well, He'll be in post-op for a while, then brought here to the ICU. His condition's critical, but there are degrees of critical, and I believe we'll be able to upgrade him to serious long before this day is over. He's going to make it. This momentous day, and every ending, new beginnings. But thank God, no ending here. Freed for the moment from the need to be strong for her sleeping angel or for Wally, Celestina turned to Tom Vanadium, saw in his gray eyes both the sorrow of the world and a hope to match her own, saw in his ruined face the promise to triumph over evil, leaned against him for support, and finally dared to cry. Chapter 72 In his Ford van filled with needlepoint and squint and zed, Junior Kane, pinched back to the world, left the Bay Area by a back door. He took State Highway 24 to Walnut Creek, which might or might not have walnuts, but which offered a mountain and a state park named for the devil, Mount Diablo. State Highway 4 to Antioch brought him to a crossing of the River Delta west of Bethel Island. Bethel, for those who have taken good advanced courses in vocabulary improvement, meant sacred place. From the devil to the sacred and then beyond, Junior drove north on State Highway 160, which was proudly marked as a scenic route, although on these pre-dawn hours, all lay bleak and black. Following the serpentine course of the Sacramento River, Highway 160 wove past a handful of small, widely separated towns. Between Alton and Locke, Junior first became aware of several points of soreness on his face. He could feel no swelling, no cuts or scrapes, and the rearview mirror revealed only the fine features that had caused more women's heart to race than all the amphetamines ever manufactured. His body ached too, especially his back, from the battering that he had taken. 
He remembered hitting the floor with his chin, and he supposed that he might have gotten knocked about the face more than he realized or remembered. If so, there will be bruises soon, but bruises would fade with time. In the interim, they might make him even more attracted to women, who will want to console and kiss away the pain, especially when they discovered that he had sustained his injuries in a brutal fight while rescuing a neighbor from a would-be rapist. Nevertheless, when the points of soreness in his brow and cheeks gradually grew worse, he stopped at a service station near Cortland, bought a bottle of Pepsi from a vending machine, and washed down yet another capsule of antihistamines. He also took another antiemetic, four aspirin, and, although he felt no trembling in his bowels, one more dose of paragoric. Thus armored, he at last arrived in the city of Sacramento, an hour before dawn. Sacramento, which means sacrament in Italian and in Spanish, called itself the Camellia Capital of the World and held a 10-day Camellia Festival in early March, already advertised on billboards now in mid-January. The Camellia, shrub and flower, is named for G. J. Camillus, a Jesuit missionary who brought it from Asia to Europe in the 18th century. I'm just speaking from experience. I know nothing about this. This must have been back in the 60s and 70s. Because now, not even close. Devil Mountains, Sacred Islands, Sacramental Cities and Rivers, Jesuits. These spiritual references at every turn made Junior uneasy. This was a haunted night, no doubt about that. He wouldn't have been greatly surprised if he had glanced at his rearview mirror and seen Thomas Vanadium's blue Studebaker, Lark Regal, closely tailing him. Not the real car raised from Quarry Lake, but a ghostly version, with the filthy, scabby monkey spirit of the cop at the wheel, an ectoplasmic Naomi at his side, Victoria Bressler and Ichabod and Bartholomew Prosser and Nettie Nathic in the back seat, the Studebaker packed full of spirits like a bozo-stuffed clown car in a circus, though there would be nothing funny about these revenge-minded spooks when the door flew open and they came tumbling out. By the time he reached the airport, located a private charter company, chased up the owner through the night security man, and arranged to be flown at once to Eugene, Oregon, aboard a twin-engine Cessna, the points of pain in his face had begun to throb. The owner, also the pilot on this trip, was pleased to be paid cash in advance and crisp $100 bills, rather than by check or credit card. He accepted payment hesitantly, however, and with an unconcealed grimace, as though afraid of contracting a contagion from the currency. What's wrong with your face? Along Junior's hairline, on his cheeks, his chin, and his upper lip, a double score of hard little knots had risen, angry red and hot to the touch. Having previously experienced a particularly vicious case of the hives, Junior realized this is something new, and worse. To the pilot, he replied, allergic reaction. A few minutes after dawn, in excellent weather, they flew out of Sacramento, bound for Eugene. Junior would have enjoyed the scenery, if his face hadn't felt as if he were gripped by a score of white-hot pliers in the hands of the same evil trolls that had peppered all the fairy tales that his mother had ever told him when he was little. Shortly after 9.30 in the morning, they landed in Eugene, and the cab driver who conveyed Junior to the town's largest shopping center spent more time staring at his afflicted passenger in the rearview mirror than he did watching the road. Junior got out of the taxi and paid through the driver's open window. The cabbie didn't even wait for his fiery-faced fare to turn completely away before he crossed himself. Junior's agony might have made him howl like a cankered dog, or might even have dropped into his knees if he hadn't used the pain to fuel his anger. His knobby countenance was so sensitive that the light breeze flailed his skin as cruelly as if it had been a barbed lash. 
Empowered by rage even more beautiful than his countenance was monstrous. He crossed the parking lot, looking through car windows in the hopes of seeing keys dangling from an ignition. Instead, he encountered an elderly woman getting out of a red Pontiac with a foxtail tied to the radio antenna. A quick glance around confirmed that they were unobserved, so he clubbed her on the back of the head with the butt of his 9mm pistol. He was in a mood to shoot her, but this weapon was not fitted with a sound suppressor. He left that gun in Salasina's bedroom. This was a pistol that he had taken from Frida Bliss's collection, and it was as full of sound as Frida had been full of spew. The old woman crumpled with a papery rustle, as though she were an elaborately folded piece of origami. She had been unconscious for a while, and after she came around, she probably wouldn't remember who she was, let alone what make a car she had been driving, until Junior was well out of Eugene. The doors were unlocked on a pickup parked next to the Pontiac. Junior lifted the granny onto the front seat of the truck. She was so light, so unpleasantly angular, and she rustled so much that she might have been a new species of giant mutant insect that mimicked human appearance. He was glad, after all, that he hadn't killed her. Granny's prickly burst spirit might have proved to be as difficult to eradicate as a cockroach infestation. With a shudder, he tossed her purse on top of her and slammed the truck door. He snatched the woman's car keys off the pavement, slid behind the wheel of the Pontiac, and drove off to find a pharmacy, the only stop that he intended to make until he reached Bruce Hills. Chapter 73 Wally had not gone home with death, but they had definitely been at the dance together. When Celestina first entered his ICU cubicle, the sight of his face scared her in spite of the surgeon's assurances. Gray, he was, and sunken-cheeked, as though this were the 18th century and so many medicinal leeches had been applied to him that too much of his essential substance had been sucked out. He was unconscious, wired to a heart monitor, pierced by an intravenous drip line. Clipped to a septum, an oxygen feed hissed faintly, and from its open mouth rose the barely audible wheeze of his breathing. For a long time, she stood beside the bed, holding his hand, confident that on some level, he was aware of her presence, though he gave no indication whatsoever that he knew she was there. She could have used a chair. Sitting, however, she wouldn't be able to see his face. In time, his hand tightened feebly on hers. And a while after that hopeful sign, his eyelids fluttered, opened. He was confused initially, frowning at the heart monitor and at the IV rack that loomed over him. When his eyes met Celestina's, his gaze clarified, and the smile that he found for her brought as much light into her heart as the diamond ring he had slipped onto her finger so few hours ago. Frown quickly followed smile, and he said thinly, Angel, she's all right. Untouched, a matronly nurse arrived, alerted to the patient's return by consciousness by the telemetry device associated with the heart monitor. She fussed over him, took his temperature, and spooned two chips of ice into his parched mouth. Leaving, she gave Celestina a meaningful look and tapped her wristwatch. Alone again with Wally, Celestina said, They told me that once you regain consciousness, I can only visit ten minutes at a time, and not that often either. He nodded. Tired. The doctors tell me you'll make a full recovery. Smiling again, speaking in a voice hardly louder than a whisper, he said, Got a wedding date to keep. She bent down and kissed his cheek, 
his right eye, his left, his brow, his dry cracked lips. I love you so much. I wanted to die when I thought you weren't with me anymore. Never say die, he admonished. Blotting her eyes on a Kleenex, she said, All right, never. Was it Angel's father? She was surprised by his intuition. Three years ago, when first she moved to Pacific Heights, Celestina had shared with him the fear that the beast would find them one day. But she hadn't spoken of that possibility in perhaps two and a half years. She shook her head. No, it wasn't Angel's father. You're her father. He was just a son of a bitch who raped Femi. They get him? I almost did, with his own gun. Wally raised his eyebrows, and I hit him with a chair, hurt him some. Wow. She said, didn't know you were going to marry an Amazon, huh? I sure did. He got away just as the police arrived, and they think he's psychotic. Plenty crazy enough to try again if they don't find him soon. Me too, he said worriedly. They don't want me to go back to the apartment. Listen to them. And they're even worried about me hanging around St. Mary's too long, because he'll expect me to be here with you. I'll be okay. Lots of friends here. You'll be out of ICU tomorrow, I bet. You'll have a phone. I'll call, and I'll come as soon as I can. He found the strength to squeeze her hand tighter than before. Be safe. Keep Angel safe. She kissed him. Two weeks, she reminded him. He smiled ruefully. Might be ready for a wedding by then, but not a honeymoon. We've got the rest of our lives for the honeymoon. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Lee Review on uh, Spotify. It takes 13 seconds. Lee Review on Podchaser. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and leave a review on the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast. You can also donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. Or on the Good Pods app, you can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,